Let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3 this morning through chapter 4, just the first part of it. We'll read that in a moment. This is the, uh, perhaps uh, known to you uh, somewhat famously, uh, the calling of the prophet Samuel. A college classmate of mine is a Bible teacher in a Christian school, and he works with little kids, and he sometimes posts on Facebook the things his kindergarten kids say to him, and evidently he was teaching on the subject of prophets because this young kindergartner said, Pastor Solomon, if prophets are loud, cranky, look funny, tell people what to do, and are old, it sounds like you're describing my grandpa. Well, uh, Samuel in this passage is no grandpa. Uh, We saw him uh, as a gift from the Lord to Hannah. We saw that at at the age of three or four when she weaned him, she brought him to the temple in Shiloh uh, to serve the Lord there. And we are somewhere probably around now at the age of 12. He's a young boy, a young man serving. And here in the passage, the Lord appears to him. The Lord speaks to him, and through him, God will speak to all Israel. What can we learn from Samuel's calling? What can we learn about Samuel's God and Samuel's word? Let me invite you to consider that as we hear the word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 3, page 227, through chapter 4, verse 1, the first part. This is the word of God. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, help us to ponder this word. Give us ears to hear. We pray that you would do good to our souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a passage about the beginning of the prophet's ministry. Uh, We learned this week of the close of a preacher's Ministry. Perhaps some of you know that the Reverend Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord. President George W. Bush said of him in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, God's work within me began in earnest with Billy's outreach. His care and his teachings were the real beginning of my walk of faith. Graham, perhaps as you know, preached all over the world to stadiums full of people. He said very frankly and regularly that the problem with the world, and the world had problems, but the problem with the world was us, that we were alienated from God, separated from God by our sins. But there was hope. There was hope in the Savior, Jesus. He, that is Graham, preached that good news all over the world. He preached it to kings and communist dictators. He preached it to presidents and prisoners, to the rich. And to the poor, without fear or favor. When asked, how did he feel when he was alive? Graham was asked, how do you feel when you stand up to preach? He answered this, usually I feel totally inadequate. And wish that the floor would open up and let me drop through. There are many times when I stand up that I almost feel like running out of the stadium. 
I feel like I have nothing to give these people. And then I remember that it's the power of the word and it's not me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I know I'm unworthy of the high privilege of declaring the good news. I know I'm inadequate for the task of persuading people. I, I want to crawl into, the, into a hole to speak of people's sin and judgment, though I want them to know salvation. You see what he's saying? But what I do know is though I'm inadequate, and though I'm weak, and though I am a sinner too, God is gracious and he works through his own word. It's his powerful word. By his word, he does his work in the hearts of people. And I, says Graham, am just a mouthpiece. Well, that is not unlike what Samuel is in a slightly different way, but there's a lot of overlap. And we want to consider this other spokesman for God, Samuel, who was a true prophet of God. Now, Billy Graham is no prophet and was no prophet, and no preacher today is a prophet like Samuel and the prophet. Samuel was the first in a long line of prophets who spoke to the kings and people of Israel in his generation up through Malachi. And he spoke the word of God, and the people of God were blessed by the speaking of the word of God. And wherever God's word has open access and free course to run, where it's made plain to us, we are blessed. In our own day, we have more than a prophet. We have something better. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Or through a son, or by a son. Jesus is the final prophet with God's last word to us. So whether we're speaking of Samuel bringing God's word in the year 1000 BC, or we speak of Jesus bringing God's word, people are blessed when they have that word. And so we want to think about that word and that prophetic ministry and what God is doing with it. And I want to do it in four ways or in a four-part outline. And uh, here's the outline. I want you to think about the God who called him, verses 2 through 10. I want you to think about the task God gave him, verses 11 to 18. I want you to ask, was he successful? Verses 19 to the beginning of chapter 4. But first, why, why is his calling so important? Verse 1. Why does Israel need a prophet? And let's start there. Why is his calling so important? Because of the grace of the prophet's presence. Verse 1. The word of God, it says, was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. In other words, at the time of the calling of Samuel, uh, there had been uh, no frequency in the deliverance of God's word to God's people. It was rare in those days. Why was it rare? We don't know for certain. It may have been partly connected to the wickedness of Eli's sons who were priests who were supposed to teach the word that had already been given. It may be because of the irreverence and the immorality of the people themselves. We know that the book of Judges, uh, contemporary with this, says uh, that uh, each one did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. 
Uh, People didn't follow the Lord. They didn't care about the Lord. And it may be that God withdrew His Word and gave His people a time of silence. But here, there's a change, right? So that uh, at verse 19, it says God raised up a prophet for the people and all the people knew that God had raised up for them a prophet. From Dan to Beersheba, that's like saying from Miami, uh, or from Maine to Miami in the U.S., Everybody knew God had given them a prophet, and that prophet was a sign of God's grace to them. Now, the situation is a little bit different for us because we don't have prophets today. Preachers are not prophets. It's not the same office. The prophets of the Old Testament did transfer to preachers in the New. Uh, Prophets in the Old transferred to apostles in the New. The preaching ministry actually flows out of the Old Testament priestly ministry. They were the regular teachers of the word of God. But both do, preachers and prophets, both do communicate the word of God. Prophets are different in this. Prophets received God's word directly and immediately, and they passed it on perfectly to the people of God. Preachers receive God's word from his word, and that word is the written word of the prior prophets and apostles. And teach that word to God's people. The point is the same in principle that wherever God's word has freedom, then God's people are blessed. And it was rare before Samuel. So it's a gracious thing when it comes when Samuel is called. Because without that word of grace, it's a sign of judgment on God's people. You see this as a sign, the the withholding of the word of God is a sign of judgment in the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 8, in a season of judgment on Israel, Amos pronounced that they would experience famine. God threatened them with famine, not a famine of bread, not a famine of thirsting for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. That can happen through a lack of revelation, a lack of prophets, a lack of preachers, a lack of freedom to read the word, own the word, hear the word, gather with the people of God around the word. You can simply just not have it. But you know that there's another way that we can experience famine. And for us who have Bibles in every home and probably in every dorm room, uh, you know that the easiest way for us to neglect... uh, not have the word is simply to neglect the word. Uh, Derek Thomas calls it selective deafness. Um, There's plenty of the word of God. We just aren't listening to it. Um, There was an early Puritan preacher Derek Thomas tells about named John Rogers who in the 16th century studied at Cambridge. He was a contemporary and knew uh, Tyndale and he refused to acknowledge in his generation the validity of the Roman church over especially the real presence in the sacraments. Um, and, and he was eventually burned under Queen Mary at the stake for denying that. He was married. He had 11 children. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, it's, there's a record of his saying goodbye to his 11 kids and his wife. And then he mounts the stairs and he's burned at the stake in Smithfield Market in London. Well, in one of his sermons, John Rogers, as he's reading the scripture, stops and pretending to be God, says to the people, who apparently weren't listening to him, 
that God was angry with them. And so he lifted up the Bible and he began walking out of the building. And then reverting sort of back to himself as the pastor, he fell on his knees and he implored God not to take the scriptures away from the people, but to return the Bible to them. And then in the voice of God, he relents and he says, I'll give the scriptures back to you for a little while longer. Illustrating this point in a rather dramatic, sermonic way. Because he understood that to have God's word come to you is to have the voice of your creator speak to you. And it is gracious. But to not have that voice or to turn a deaf ear to that voice is always a terrible thing. Now the good news, of course, is that God began speaking in a new way, in a new age, in the time of Samuel. And Samuel was in a long line of prophets that led to the final great prophet, Jesus. And God is speaking to us in his son. And so it is a grace when God speaks to us through his word. The grace of the prophet's presence among his people. But the second thing I want you to see is this, the kindness of the prophet's God in verses 2 through 10. As you consider his calling into ministry here, notice how personal and persistent and patient God is with him. Samuel here is sleeping in the temple at night. Verse 3, it says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. That probably means that it was early morning because they kept the lamp on through the night. So they hadn't put the light out yet. It's early in the morning and it was probably his duty to keep that light lit. And Samuel hears a voice. And it's, of course, the voice of God calling him by name, Samuel, Samuel. And it's just sweet to reflect that God knows our name. God knows us personally. Uh, He calls Samuel here by name. He knows all about us. And notice how persistent God is here. There's this process. Samuel sleeping. God calls him. He says, here I am to Eli because he misunderstands running to Eli. I mean, who else, if you're Samuel, would be calling you in the middle of the night? And then Eli says, no, 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 go back and lie down. You know, I I didn't call you. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. You, You can kind of imagine what may be going on here. I mean... Eli is old, his sight is already gone. He, he may be, Samuel thinks, he may be losing his mind a little bit, and doesn't even remember that he called for me by the time I get to him. And maybe Eli is looking at Samuel thinking, boy, that, that, little, that little boy, he's a, he's a nervous kind of kid. He's, he's just up and jittery, you know, all about stuff, hearing voices in the night, you know. Um, it takes him a little while to figure this thing out. Maybe you wonder as you're reading the story, is God actually going to get through to Samuel? Um, and, uh, and, and of course he does. But before we jump um, to the present day and take Samuel's experience for our own, let me give us a word of caution. What God did with Samuel here is not normative. Okay, We're not led by the Bible to expect that God will show up in our bedroom, standing at the foot of our bed, speak our name out loud to us, and then call us to declare judgment on the wicked priests. No. God spoke directly to him face to face. God revealed himself to him in a vision. But now, 
God speaks to us through the word he's already given, and he speaks most directly through that. And actually, you might say to yourself, well, I'd like the other experience. I wish I could have the Samuel experience. But actually, you have something better, the Bible says. You, You know that God only spoke to Samuel on very irregular occasions. He only spoke to Abraham on very irregular occasions. But God speaks to us every day. Every time we open this book, this is the voice of God. We're in a better position. We have the full revelation of God. We have all that he wants us to know about how to be saved and how to walk with him in this life until we get to heaven. It's better to be us than it is to be Samuel. But you say, but, but isn't, doesn't God still deal directly with me as a person? Yes, of course he does. Jesus said to a church that was lukewarm in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, he promised, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He promises fellowship with you, community with you, that you will be his and he will be yours if you will respond to him as he speaks to you, as he speaks to you through his word. The better question than to ask, how can I get Samuel's experience for me, would be to ask, do I have the same God as Samuel had? Do I know this God who's kind, who's patient, who's persistent, who's gentle? I mean, think of this experience. I mean, why didn't Samuel know what was going on when God spoke his name? Why didn't he recognize the voice of the Lord? Verse 7 tells you. He did not yet know the Lord. Now, what's that getting at? Is, is it saying Samuel needs to be called into salvation or that Samuel needs to be called into service or Samuel needs to be both called into salvation and service? Or is it something else? Well, sometimes God's call into salvation is at the same time as his call into service. You think of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, who went into the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne, and the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says of himself, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king of glory. And then God atones for his sin and applies that burning coal from the altar of atonement and pardons him and cleanses him. And on that same day, God calls him into service. He's called to salvation and service in the same day. You think of Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, a hater of the Messiah, ignorant, but wrong. And God met with him, Jesus met with him on the road to Damascus and called him into genuine salvation at the same time calling him to be an apostle of the good news. It sometimes happens that way. Sometimes, however, God brings people to himself in salvation who are already in service in the church. However, ignorantly, they may serve if they don't actually know him. However well-meaning they may be. But if they don't really know him, and yet they're serving, there's a, there's a famous illustration from William Halsam, a Church of England minister in, who was ordained in 1842. So he's ordained to the gospel ministry. Nine years later, in 1851, he's preaching the gospel. And one day he's preaching the gospel on this passage from the gospels. What think ye of Christ, the King James? What do you think of Christ? And while preaching, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see the Christ 
of whom he was preaching and gave him the ability to believe. And while he was preaching, he was converted and trusted in that Christ. And it was so obvious there was another preacher in attendance visiting who noticed it. And he jumped up and he said, Hallelujah, the parson is converted. And three or four hundred worshipers joined in the praise of God. And William Halsam joined in too. But he thought it should be done more orderly. And so he gave out the doxology. And they sang the doxology. And then he gave it out again. And then he gave it out. They just kept going on singing the doxology and praising the God who had just saved him as a preacher. <laughs> because sometimes a man in the pulpit may not even know the Lord. And I invite you to pray for your pastors. I invite you to pray for all who ever preach to you. Not that we would have professional competence, but that we would genuinely and sincerely know and grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And that's not just a point for preachers, of course. That's for all of us. You can be among the professing people of God. You can hold church membership. You can be a baptized infant who confesses their faith and partakes of the supper. And yet not genuinely know the Lord. But sometimes God very graciously in the midst of worship meets you. Now that's possibly Samuel's experience. But actually, I think unlikely in in light of what we already know about Samuel. It does say he did not yet know the Lord. And that may mean that he had not yet ever heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him. And he didn't know how to recognize that voice when the Lord did. Not so much that he needed to be saved, but that he did need to be called to be a prophet. And why do I say that? Well, in chapter 2, verse 11, we've already read that the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And in chapter 2, verse 26, we've already read that the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. A parallel expression to the Lord Jesus' own childhood experience. So I think it's more likely that what you have here is a young man growing up in the church, surrounded by the good news of the gospel, amidst some real wickedness in the church. And he's growing up in the Lord. And he's learning to serve the Lord. But he did need to have a special call to be a prophet. And that's what God gave him here. He was already saved. He's already serving. Now he's going to be a unique spokesman. Notice as God calls him how unhurried he is about it. Eli, or Samuel. Eli run, or Samuel runs to Eli. God says Samuel. Samuel runs to Eli. God says Samuel. Samuel runs to Eli. God doesn't jump all over him. He doesn't lay it on thick. He doesn't shout, shout him down. Get with the program. He doesn't let out an exasperated sigh that Samuel's so thick he just doesn't get it yet. But God rather adapts himself to his servant's condition. He knows what Samuel needs. And he patiently and persistently reaches out to him. 
And this is the way that God frequently deals with all of his people. It's easy to make a a kind of a false view of God in our own minds, to imagine a God that isn't the true God. We can begin to imagine that God must simply be waiting to pounce on us for every mistake we make. That God is anxious somehow to to, uh, blast away uh, when we're in error. As if he's abrupt, he's quick-tempered, he's harsh. That he's just ready to say, you stupid fool. Why don't you get it right? And you say to me, who thinks of God like that? I think some of you think of God like that. I think some of us do. I think think parents are sometimes tempted to treat their children like that, which may be a reflection that they think God, their father, is treating them like that. You know, demand first-time obedience. I say it once. I won't say it again. You get with the program. You do what I say. You fall in line or else. I'm not going to say it again. But God here is very patient. Calling him out. We saw how patient God was with the church leaders who were wicked in that day. We saw that God let the wicked sons of Eli serve as priests. And God was long-suffering with them. Do you think that God is less patient with his own people than with the wicked? No, he's patient. He's, and he's not quick to abandon the effort. He keeps on reaching out. And so you see something of the kindness of the prophet's God here. And then thirdly, you see something in the tension of the prophet's task. There's tension here, verses 11 to 18. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to pass on a word of judgment to Eli. A word Eli has already heard from a man of God previously. And a word that is reiterated to Samuel to pass along in verses 11 to 14. God says, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel that the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. We're going to be shocked by what God is going to do. And on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken against his home. And we looked at that last week, what it is that God said he would do. And we'll look at it again in its fulfillment. But just notice that he has to give... Uh, this, this repeated message of a severe and irreversible judgment against Eli and particularly his wicked sons in his house because the sons treated the Lord with contempt and Eli did nothing to stop them. They looked at the grace of God offered in the sacrifices of atonement and they said, what does it matter? Who gives a rip about that? We can do whatever we want. We don't need that sacrifice. That thing's not important at all. And they trampled on the grace of God. And God finally had had enough. And Samuel, now you can imagine, he's just this young boy, is charged to go to Eli, and his first prophetic message is the passing on of this word of judgment. And you can see how poignant this was and how maybe perhaps how difficult this was for him. It says that Samuel was afraid. You can imagine him having heavy footsteps. He, he, he slept in that morning. He wasn't anxious to run out and go find Eli. You can imagine him slowly opening the door and there sits Eli in an outer room or a, or a room nearby. And he's finishing his eggs and his oatmeal at breakfast. And Samuel doesn't want to go up to him and, and share the message. 
And Eli calls him twice my son, verse 6, verse 16. It's this, it's this um, intimate, affectionate, caring relationship that has grown up between Eli and Samuel. Maybe Samuel, on account of the wickedness of his own children, had taken such great delight in this young boy who wanted to serve the Lord and had been an answer to, God's, to Hannah's prayers. But you can imagine that he didn't want to deliver a negative message to a man that he cared for. And it, you can imagine how, how there, there would be this tension that it would tear up your soul. I've got to give this message of judgment. I don't want to speak a message of judgment. But a true prophet must speak a message, God's message. Eli actually lays on him a curse if he doesn't share the message. And so he's got to speak it, but he recoils from it. He cringes at it because he loves the man. You can understand how that would have put a lot of pressure on him. There would have been a lot of tension, a lot of a heavy burden. Here in, uh, in the Presbyterian world, of which I am a part as an ordained minister in the PCA, we take vows when we're ordained to the ministry. And one of our vows goes like this. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. We've got to be ready to speak the truth in love and even if people react badly to it. And that's a hard thing. But you can sometimes tell a real gospel ministry from a false or phony one Because if the preacher only smothers you with comfort and only talks to you about the love and forgiveness of God, but he never seeks to correct you, never seeks to rebuke you, then he may be a phony before God. Because who's uncorrectable? But on the other side, if he consistently is negative and always critical and just seems to delight in somehow speaking about your sin or God's judgment, he never has a word of comfort for you. Then does the preacher have a heart of stone? Does he not care? Does he not love? You can see the tension here. The word of God should come to us with this kind of tension. It will rebuke you and it will encourage you. And it's the preacher's job to, as many have put it, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And one final thing here then. Was was Samuel successful as a prophet of God? We'll notice the reception of the prophet's word, verse 19 to 4, 1. God spoke to Samuel. Samuel spoke to Israel on behalf of the Lord. And all Israel heard the Lord. That doesn't mean that everybody responded. The success was not. Every person he ever talked to was converted and believed. But he faithfully passed on the word that he was given. Everybody, verse 20, knew that he was a prophet of the Lord. Verse 21, God kept revealing himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. And so the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And let me just, by way of closing, speak to us as the professing people of God today. What have you done, not so much with Samuel, but with that greater prophet, Jesus? Are you hearing his word?
Are you listening when it's read to you, preached to you? Do you open this word in your home with uh, a desire to, to hear and know God? Or are you neglectful of it? Are you disinterested in it? Do you turn a hard heart and it rushes off your brain like water off a duck's back? Have you let the cares of this world and the desires for other things choke, strangle the Word of God in your life? I commend to you Samuel's approach. The Lord said, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That ought to be our response. May that be our prayer. That message that you hear might be a great comfort to you. At times, it may just flat out mow you over. Because if you don't have a God that can contradict you, a God who can correct you, a God who can expose you, then... You don't have a God who is different than you. You basically, if God always tells you what you want to hear, if God always agrees with you about what you already believe, you don't have the God of the Bible. You have yourself as your own God. But this God corrects us. He rebukes us, but he also comforts us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you listening then, not to what's so much inside your own head, as you are listening to the voice of the Lord speaking in the scriptures? This, that word is about his final word, the word of God incarnate, the word who became flesh to dwell among us and bring us faithfully to God. Are you listening to him? Let's pray. Father, You know the preacher's heart, and you know every heart, and you know when we're cold and when we're hard-hearted, you know when we're neglectful and lazy, you know when we're disinterested, you know when our affections are on other things, you know all the failures and weaknesses of our walk with you. Forgive us and change us. And grant that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ Jesus. In his name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.